Move Forward Radio is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at MoveForwardPT.com. You're listening to Move Forward Radio, a podcast featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts with advice on how you can move forward. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. The opioid epidemic has been much discussed in recent years, and yet it still needs more action and attention. Illicit use of heroin and fentanyl are a large part of the crisis, but also problematic is the healthcare system that often makes opioids more accessible to patients with chronic pain than safer non-opioid options. The American Physical Therapy Association has been raising awareness about the opioid epidemic and looking to approve access to non-opioid options for more than two years. Those efforts continued on February 5, 2018, when APTA convened a panel of seven experts to discuss how pain management in America could be transformed to move beyond opioids and improve the health of society. That panel event was broadcast live on Facebook and included the debut of APTA's latest public service announcement for the Choose PT campaign. In this special edition of Move Forward Radio, we're providing full audio from that event. Here now is Beyond Opioids, Transforming Pain Management to Improve Health. From APTA headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia, this is Beyond Opioids, Transforming Pain Management to Improve Health. I'm Jason Bellamy, and tonight you're going to get seven different perspectives on the opioid epidemic over three different panels. We'll also be debuting APTA's Choose PT public service announcement. Before we go any further, though, let's talk about why we're here and what we hope to explore tonight. The opioid epidemic is an ongoing and serious problem. Survey estimates indicate that 2.4 million Americans have an opioid use disorder. Prescription opioid misuse is thought to increase health care and substance abuse, co- abuse treatment costs in this country by $29 billion. In 2016, American life expectancy at birth declined for the second straight year, the first time that's happened since the early 1960s. This is an urgent problem. It's an urgent issue, but so is pain. Pain is often the reason that people enter the healthcare system. We must not minimize what it means to live with pain. Pain can be overwhelming. It's no wonder that doctors looking out for their patients' best interests have looked to mask that pain by prescribing opioids, opioids in the recent years with, growing, with increased frequency. We must also not forget that properly dosed opioids are an appropriate part of healthcare treatment, particularly for cancer treatment and end-of-life care. But we also must not ignore the larger trend. Despite an increase in opioid prescriptions, the amount of Americans reporting pain has not decreased, but Americans' overall health has decreased. Tonight's event is built on a basic premise. There are multiple ways to treat, manage, and prevent pain and we must increase increase awareness of and access to non-opioid options. Before I introduce our first panel of three tonight, I'd like to introduce APTA President Sharon Dunn to offer a few remarks. Sharon. Thank you, Jason. First, I want to welcome everyone. Thank you for those of you who came from close to be with us today in our studio audience right here at... uh, APTA headquarters in the Mary McMillan Conference Room. I also want to thank those of you who have joined us on Facebook Live, those PTs, PT assistants, and students who have already put in a full Monday. Appreciate you joining us tonight. Also joining us may be people who this epidemic cuts very close to home. I want to thank you for looking to us for hope and a new message to manage your pain. Also, I want to thank our panelists who have come from across the country to join us tonight and giving your time and energy to helping us work together to deal with this terrible tragedy of, of, of opioid addiction in this country. And to those of you who are, who are watching live, as, as you sit there in your homes and in your communities, I want you to think about how 
as you listen to these panelists discuss the epidemic and what we can do together, I want you to think about how you can join this to create a societal solution um, that we all need to join because if we're going to transform society, it's going to take all of us, not only in our profession, but an interdisciplinary approach to, to make a difference. So think of how you can make that difference right there in your hometown and your communities. Thank you all for joining us. Appreciate this. And I look forward to hearing the discussion. Thank you, Sharon Dunn. So now I'll introduce our first panel. And I'm going to start at the far right of your screen with Congressman Donald Norcross. Uh, he represents the first district of New Jersey. He's also the vice chair of the bipartisan task force to combat the heroin epidemic. Uh, just to his right is Grant Baldwin, the director of the Division of Unintentional Injury Prevention for the C Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And then immediately to my left is Joan Maxwell. And Joan, I'm going to start with you tonight. You're a, a patient and family advisor for John Muir Health. You're a member of the Patient and Family Centered Care Partners. Uh, more importantly, you are a real-life example of someone who's been impacted by the opioid epidemic. Um, you had multiple interactions with the healthcare system at a time before we were really talking about alternatives to opioids, before we were talking about the risks of opioids. Speaking about your personal experience first, take me through that. What was your experience with the healthcare system at the time? Uh, okay, well, first of all, I want to just say thank you for including the voice of a patient here today. That's really important that we all work together. Um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2014 and had a double mastectomy. And a few weeks after what I thought was the flu and just went to bed for three days turned out to be a raging staph infection. So I ended up back in the hospital and had nine surgeries over the course of about two and a half years. After one of those surgeries, I had a stroke. So I spent two and a half years in the healthcare system um, and had a very good experience overall, and I'm healthy today. But I learned, thank you. <laughs> Thank all of you, but uh, I learned a lot uh, from that experience. Nine times I had surgery, and nine times I was prescribed opioids, and nine times I never had a discussion with a doctor in advance about what my pain experience might be and what my options might be. So one of the things that I really feel strongly about is there's just a wonderful opportunity for communication and for patients to be educated in advance about pain and about their choices and not just given a prescription for opioids. Um, I managed my opioids pretty well. Um, I was very conscious of it and determined to be extremely cautious, but opioids don't help you recover. They don't help you get your range of motion back. They don't help you make the progress that you need to make to get your strength back and return to your life. So um, I had, you know, like I said, a good experience overall, but still lots of room for improvement and communication. And one thing I really want to emphasize is that, you know, I consider myself like a somewhat competent person in my regular life. But when this happened to me, it was so shocking and surprising and so incredibly confusing. You know, sometimes I had a sur I had a breast cancer surgeon, I had a reconstruction surgeon, I had infectious disease specialists, I had a cardiologist, I had a neurologist, and I didn't know who to ask my questions to, I didn't know how things were going to happen or what to expect, I didn't understand the system. You know, I'm in the fashion business, and if you asked me about that, I could <laughs> talk for hours. But I was so naive in this world and also worried about my job and my kids and 
all the other things that I, you know, maybe I could have done a better job, but I needed a lot of help with all that confusion. And then I'll also say that you get sent home so early. You know, you have, I had drains and these pain pumps and all kinds of paraphernalia to manage, and you need a lot of help with that. And so that's another opportunity. So that's a lot. No, that was great. Sorry. <laughs> well, nine operations is a lot. Um, <laughs> So you said you, you emerged from all this relatively unscathed, right? Um, at least as a, in regards to cancer opioids. Cancer-free. And cancer-free, which is mm -hmm. tremendous. Um, you had a brother-in-law, however, who had a different experience with opioids. And if you don't mind, please share that with us. Yes. Um, I have a brother-in-law who is addicted to opioids. And he had, uh, he's had two kind of failed back surgeries. And this started about six years ago. And unfortunately, um, he had a lot of pain after the surgery, and he became addicted to opioids. And to this day, um, it's a real struggle for our family. He is, uh, my sister-in-law has to, he's still in a lot of pain. They're actually considering a third surgery, but he, she has to manage his uh, pills and hide them and give them to him daily. Uh, he has a fentanyl patch, and opioids, in a way, are keeping him going, and they're also ruining his life and his family's life. And he's had to detox several times. He had to do it at home with his kids and his wife helping him, which I'm sure everyone can imagine how devastatingly painful that is to have your kids see you uh, go through that. He can't sit at the dinner table with his family and eat dinner. Um, he's, he's a mess and, um, and he's a wonderful person and if you, he could sit up here with all of us but it's been devastating for our whole family and it's uh, such a good example of what is happening because, you know, he was just a regular person like all of us and just one surgery and he was uh, addicted. So I'm here because of him. Joan, you, you mentioned um, the, the need for conversations and the need for greater awareness uh, as people navigate through the healthcare system. Um, as your family has grappled with this, what you've gone through, but then of course what your brother-in-law is going through right now. Have you looked at this and seen two starkly different experiences in terms of how it started? Or, or do you look at this and say, you seem to emerge unscathed and he didn't and you, you don't know why? Um, I think it's a little serendipitous. I really do. I think that some people like Larry um, have kind of this instant uh, reaction to opioids and it was so much harder for him than it was for me. So that's one thing in the list of many things that I wonder about in terms of making a difference is, is there a way in the future that we can identify people who are at risk uh, in a more significant way than others? Um, but also, it feels like such a huge opportunity to just have the conversations in advance. And I'm wondering, I'm guessing insurance companies don't pay for that now, but is that something that could be looked at? Because to have that conversation, I mean, my conversation was when I was in my gown pre-op, five minutes before being wheeled into surgery, a pain specialist came in and made a recommendation that I had no idea what it meant. And I'll just tell you, if you're about to go into a seven-hour surgery and they offer you something, you say yes. <laughs> I, I mean, there's no other choice. So, you know, those conversations, if they could be more thoughtful and you could have time to think about it. And also, if you were told a little bit more about what level of pain to expect, because I do think that there is 
going to be some pain. And right now, all of these opioids kind of dull that and make you pain-free, which isn't necessarily the best thing long-term for your recovery. But I don't think a lot of patients really understand that, and it took me going through this process to kind of absorb and understand that. So that feels like a big opportunity. You mentioned several ways that the healthcare system should, should adapt in light of uh, the epidemic, in light of your experience. Um, but having been through what you have gone through, having been through what your brother-in-law is going through now, what would your advice be to patients about their responsibility and their, their ability within, given the, the, the realities of opioids, about how they should enter into, into their healthcare, knowing all the facts that we know now? What should they do? Um, I think they need to uh, educate themselves if, you know, obviously things happen and not every surgery is planned, but if you have the opportunity, which both Larry and I did, to know in advance, to educate yourself and have a conversation with your doctor about pain and what is the plan for pain management, and also what is it going to look like to you to be healed. I think, you know, surgeons heal you and two days later they're like okay great I did a great job it looks beautiful bye <laughs> meanwhile you can't drive you can't lift your luggage to get on a plane and make a trip you can't cook I mean you have all this recovery yet ahead of you and so I think there's a big opportunity for more discussion around the whole continuum and also for patients to understand that it might be to their benefit uh, not to take opioids but to use other forms of pain management. I mean, I had such a positive experience with physical therapy as a result of my stroke. And I had this, you know, amazing physical therapist who came up with new ideas every week. And I got 100% of my strength back on my right side, thanks to her. And that wouldn't have happened with opioids. Thank you. So that's a great segue to Grant Baldwin of the CDC. Grant, uh, we're about two years removed from the CDC re releasing guidelines on the prescription of opioids related to chronic pain. Um, those guidelines obviously take into account stories like Jones and stories like so many Americans who have been impacted by this crisis. Um, started in a very high level first. Two years post those guidelines, they've obviously increased awareness. They've helped spur the conversation. Uh, what's changed, positively or negatively? How different are we now than we were in March 2016 when those guidelines were released? Sure, thanks for the question. I think a couple of things have changed. First, the epidemic has continued to rage. As people know, we've now lost over 200,000 Americans to opioids since 1999. And while prescription opioid-related deaths plateaued from around 2011 to 2015, they've gone up again in 2016, and there was a 20% increase in opioid-related deaths. The prescription opioid problem has now been sort of confounded and complicated by the ever-growing illicit problem with heroin and fentanyl. Um, and as you mentioned, we released the opioid prescribing guidelines in March of 2016, um, and much has changed. We knew when we released the guideline, that was really just the starting point, that we really had to place a tremendous amount of energy in translation um, and dissemination, and so we did a few things. First, um, on the translation and communication side, we released a whole host of fact sheets and other materials. We have, we work with the Tool Gawande's group on a clinical algorithm or checklist that clinicians could use. We uh, implemented a mobile app that you can download. Um, we are also educating clinicians, both um, initially and in through continuing medical education. Um, we, I think the signature in that space is a, a 10 part uh, series, including one of the modules that's out already on treating pain without opioids, which we're really excited about. And we've been partnering with um, schools across the country to increase guideline concordant care, medical schools, nursing schools, pharmacy schools, and hopefully soon uh, schools of physical therapy. Um, we're also very encouraged and interested in, as you can appreciate, what are the non-opioid, non-pharmacologic treatment options. So we recently funded, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the AHRQ systematic review that was done on what is the evidence base around non-opioid therapies. Um, that's just out now, and I think um, there's growing interest and energy on making sure that those evidence-based um, options are covered 
they're covered with, um, with the quantity and the duration and at a level where co-pays are so that people can actually afford these sort of exercise, multimodal rehabilitation, uh, frankly, your story personified. Um, and then lastly, we really see um, there's a real power in story. And so we're trying to raise general public awareness around prescription opioids and the risks of prescription opioids. Last September, we launched a large-scale communication campaign um, uh, with uh, family members who've lost loved ones as well as people who are recovering from their addiction uh, with the tagline, it only takes a little to lose a lot. Prescription opioids can be addictive and dangerous. Um, with that... Um, campaign has gotten wide-scale pickup, which we're really excited about, and we're working with our state-based partners to customize and tailor that. So that ensures what's changed. So as you mentioned, the CDC's engaged in a lot of efforts to increase the evidence-based materials that are out there, but I want to go back to those guidelines because um, it's a multi-page document, right? Yeah. It's, it's a deep and vast guideline. There's a lot of information there. Uh, for somebody who's just heard, only aware that there are guidelines that exist but have not poured through all, all of it, can you summarize briefly basically the gist of what those guidelines recommend? Sure. Um, the guidelines apply for chronic pain for primary care clinicians uh, treating adults in chronic pain. That's pain lasting longer than three months. Um, and uh, there are sort of 12 specific guidelines that cut across three basic principles. First, that opioids should not be the first-line choice for treatment of chronic pain if opioids are used, second, that they should be done judiciously and cautiously. Um, three days is usually enough. Uh, caution should be given after opioids are prescribed at more than uh, 50 morphine milligram equivalents, which is a metric for comparing opioids across one another. Um, as Joan mentioned, there should be treatment goals established for opioid therapy. And then finally, uh, patients should be monitored carefully over time using things like prescription drug monitoring programs and urine drug tests and people who are at high risk for substance use disorder, for example, should be co-prescribed naloxone, which is a harm reduction that reduces if somebody is an active overdose, can reverse an overdose in progress. Um, so those are, I think, some of the sort of high-level takeaways. Maybe another one is that opioids for high-risk patients should not be co-prescribed with benzodiazepines such as Xanax and Valium. Um, but that's kind of the gist of it. I, I should say that the guidelines are not rule, regulation, or law. They're, in, in fact, just intended to be just that, a guideline, which is to give clinicians some benchmarks to have conversations with patients. What's going to work for you? What are your treatment goals? Let's dialogue about what makes sense. In some cases, the, the benefits of opioids do outweigh the risks. There are a number of people who do well on long-term opioid therapy. They need to be monitored carefully. Um, uh, over time. So it's, it's uh, as I said, it's not a rule, regulation, or law. It's intended to simply be a conversation starter. You alluded to this a moment ago, but I want to go, one of the elements of the guideline that I think maybe gets most overlooked most often is this idea, I think, that people see the guidelines potentially as anti-opioid all the time, and this decision, initial decision of to use opioids or not to use opioids. Um, but one of the recommendations is, even in cases when opioids are prescribed, to always pair it with something else. Pair it with a non-opioid option. Don't just rely on the opioids. Joan's story, obviously, is a great example of why to do that. Um, what are those alternatives, and, and how, how accessible are they to the general public? I mean, I think there's a need for those, those opportunities, to, those um, interventions to be more accessible. I think um, post-surgery, it does make sense perhaps to have a short um, script of opioids, but then it, that absolutely does need to be done in combination with the range of therapies from exercise to uh, acupuncture, massage, yoga, cognitive behavioral therapy, a full range of treatment options. I think um, the evidence base is continuing to build out, but the goal should be to improve pain, function, and quality of life. That, that, that's really what we're aiming for. And if, you know, I think the physical therapy community is well poised to help deliver on that. Obviously, immediately post-surgery or an acute event, it does may, may make sense to have opioids for a short day supply. The CDC guidelines recommend, you know, three days is usually sufficient for, you know, a, a fracture or a wisdom tooth extraction longer than seven days. Again, the, the risk goes up as dose and duration go up. So that's something you need to be sensitive to. I want to finish this panel by talking to the Congressman. Congressman Norcross, uh, as you listen to Joan's story, first of all, what does that sound like compared to the stories you hear from the First District of New Jersey? First of all, thank you for having this conversation. 
we have that bipartisan task force uh, that has been meeting over the last two years in Congress because 435 districts across this country from urban centers to rural areas. The stories that happen in my district are not unlike anywhere else in this country, unlike your story. And in many cases, in the rural areas where logic of years ago thinking it was an urban issue is happening to little Mikey down the street. Is there a predisposition when they go and they tear their knee up and take that first pill? Does it trigger something, much like your story of your brother? It hit him differently than it did you. So these are the stories that we hear. And I uh, unfortunately buried a dear friend of mine uh, a little over a month ago who struggled with the disease of addiction uh, his adult life. We see that pain, and it's a room like this where we'll be discussing this, and you see somebody tear up, and you understand that it goes across all races, all economics. Everybody in this country has had this story, unfortunately. And this year, we expect the number to be around 75,000 who will die from the disease of addiction through an overdose. The disease of addiction is something I know you're very passionate about. What needs to change in this country in terms of, of, that's obviously bigger than just opioids, but what needs to change in terms of how we treat that disease? Well, first of all, you're having this discussion. That stigma, drug addict, oh, we can't help it. Self-induced, if you didn't take the drug, you would never be a drug addict. These are the things that we hear. Quite frankly, it's State of Union. We can arrest our way out of this problem, which is all the wrong message. Yes, criminals need to be addressed. Nobody's going to argue with that. But as I was walking up to a dear friend of mine whose son, eight years clean, overdosed, just one relapse, and she's crying, she, I should have been able to do something about this. I said, if your son had diabetes, would you blame yourself? There really isn't a, diff uh, a difference. It is the disease of addiction. So having the conversations in rooms like this on Facebook Live, we had a, uh, an event back in district where we invited what we thought were going to be maybe 30 or 40 people in. We had close to 250 in the audience and 4,000 on Facebook Live because they're seeing that it's impacting anybody at any time. And parents, loved ones, friends will do whatever they can to try to help them. And sometimes that's not enough. So we, uh, in Congress, it's our obligation to make sure that we address this issue. So coming together across party lines, northern states, southern states, to have the conversation. This is not a moral failing. It's a disease. And the more we understand this, the more we can address it, knowing that I might have come in with a shoulder pain I take a pill and it's going to impact me one way and you impacts differently. So what CDC uh, has done in prescribing guidelines is a great first step. It's multifaceted. It's across all areas. We in Congress created incentives to sit for pain management. If you address pain management, you get a better score for reimbursements. Pharmaceutical industry, we all have a little bit of blood in this trail and coming together as a country not blaming the addict, the pharmaceutical, but coming together to address this is the only way we're going to be able to defeat this. So you mentioned Congress has a responsibility um, to take on this problem. What's realistic to expect? What, what could Congress do this year to make a dent in the opioid epidemic? Well, number one, I applaud the uh, president when he declared it a uh, health emergency. Uh, I come from New Jersey. Our former governor, Chris Christie, embrace the notion, really taking some very fluid steps to address it in our state, having a conversation, putting commercials up on TV, talking about it in real life terms. But just talking about it is not going to change it. We have to have the, uh, the different methods to address it, whether it's through education, but treatment. You know, this doesn't accidentally go away. You just don't wake up one morning saying, gee, I'm not an addict anymore and life goes on. It's treatment, it's chronic, and it's something that, uh, you know, particularly uh, the harder we crack down on ways that the abuses, whether it's through the emergency wards, or I lived in Camden, New Jersey. They could get a prescription in New Jersey. 
drive across the bridge, pay a $4 toll, and get the same script on the other side of the river because we weren't sharing that information. It's hard to believe in this day and age we weren't sharing. Those are the simple things we can do. But as we shut off one avenue after another for those who are driving to get that drug, that shoves them out on the street to buy the illicit heroin or the fentanyl, and that's the skyrocketing numbers we're seeing today from the overdoses. This is impacting everybody across the country, and, and to that effort, if people are watching this right now and, and want the assistance of Congress, it seems to me like at a time when there's so much disagreement and so much division in this country, this is as nonpartisan of an issue as there could possibly be. Um, what can people watching this do to encourage Congress to come together around this issue, to have unity around this issue, and get something done soon? Well, we have well over 100 members of this bipartisan caucus, and we meet on a regular basis, as you know. So for those of you who have suffered, or a loved one, or a friend of yours, make an appointment with your congressman or your congresswoman back in district, and give that real story that this isn't some urban issue that happens in the dark at night, that it happens anywhere. Uh, I think those personal stories are so important because they touch so many lives. We had a horrible storm last year in the city of Camden. Snow was two and a half feet, and the only thing that was working was our subway system. And I recall this as footprints in the snow. Nothing moving except for those addicts coming into the city and walking through two feet of snow, driving them to get that drug. That disease of addiction is killing our fathers, our mothers, our sons and daughters. And the only way this gets addressed is if we come together and have a conversation that's open and honest. Patrick Kennedy, who has a, had a bill that was signed in the law that talks about parity. So the same way we treat physical injury should be the same way we deal with mental health. That's been passed some years ago, and we still haven't been able to address that because the finances come into play here. Are you, are you going to pay for this? Are you going to pay for this? The cost is what we're seeing in lives each and every year. So that's why our caucus continues to grow and hopefully come together and actually put the resources that we need towards this. Thank you, all three of you, for being part of this discussion. Uh, we're going to take a 60-second break here to debut APTA's new Choose PT P, uh, public service announcement. APTA launched the Choose PT uh, campaign in June 2016 to raise awareness about the opioid epidemic, to talk about options for treating uh, pain. Uh, APTA's first PSA launched later that year. It was aired in 45 states in the District of Columbia. It reached more than 377 million Americans. It received more than $5 million of donated airtime. Uh, tonight, we're about to debut APTA's second Choose PT PSA. After tonight, that will be uh, released to networks nationwide, and you could hear, see this on your TV or hear it on the radio uh, coming up soon. And so uh, thank you again to our first panel, and here is the debut of APTA's new Choose PT PSA. Every year, millions of Americans use opioids to manage pain. Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming, and all-consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Virginia at APTA headquarters. Uh, that again was APTA's Choose PT PSA. You can find more about the Choose PT campaign at moveforwardpt.com. 
Uh, that PSA in isolation will be posted to social media at our Move Forward PT accounts later tonight, so look out for that. Please share it. Uh, please help get the word out. Uh, there's also a campaign toolkit at moveforwardpt.com slash choosept where you can find ways to engage in the campaign. Um, I'm now pleased to introduce our second panel tonight. Um, on your right is Sarah Wenger. She's the Associate Clinical Professor at Drexel University's College of Nursing and Health Professions. And then Stephen Stanos. He's the Medical Director of Swedish Pain Services, Medical Director of Occupational Medi Medicine Services at Swedish Medical Center, and the President of the American Academy of Pain Medicine. Um, and Stephen, I'd start, like to talk, start with you tonight. Excuse me. Um, opioids mask the pain. Uh, we talked, we heard about the CDC, about reducing the amount that we use them. As we look for a new way to, to approach and treat pain, how much should opioids be a part of it, and how do you fit that into a collaborative model? Well, um, thanks for having me and, and on behalf of American Academy of Pain Medicine. As a pain medicine specialist, it's great to be here. And as a rehab doctor, I've been working with physical therapists in my career, and most of us in pain medicine have, so it's really good to see um, APTA making the steps that they want to take. Um, I think going back to your question, uh, Grant mentioned the CDC guideline with regards to opioids, and the recommendations, the first recommendation talked about how opioids need to be used in combination um, with other types of treatment. So, you know, I think the understanding needs to be that that's not the first choice, that we have physical therapy, um, uh, exercise, we have non-opioid medications, uh, antidepressants, sleep medications. I mean, the, the patients have such complex stories and complex needs, it, we're not going to solve this with one pill or one type of pill. So if opioids are going to be used, um, you know, have they failed other medications, or what are the goals of that patient if we're going to use opioids and understand the risk of those? Um, and so within that, too, once patients are on opioids, um, like you, like Grant alluded to with um, opioid prescribing, um, checking the PDMP, uh, doing urine screens, um, I think where we um, maybe made some missteps were not appreciating the risk factors patients have. Uh, do they have a risk factor in their family for substance abuse or alcohol misuse? Um, do they have a history of pre-adolescent sexual abuse or physical abuse? There are risk factors that we can identify, and how can we identify those early and then use those risk factors uh, to better treat our patients and monitor patients. And maybe for those patients, opioids aren't going to be a good option. So how at Swedish are, are you approaching uh, treating pain in a different way, not just the take a pill and move on way, uh, treating it in a more comprehensive fashion? Well, it's Swedish and you know, around the country for a number of years, there's been um, what's called multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary treatment programs uh, where patients in the past, those programs uh, that were team-based approach that have a lot of evidence were mostly for injured workers. Um, and myself and a lot of my colleagues worked with those programs for many years, and it was always kind of a question to us, why are we just using this for people to get them back to work when our pain patients without a work injury have the same issues? Um, interdisciplinary programs, like our program at Swedish, involves um, patients are evaluated first by a physician for a pain medicine specialist for an hour. They also see our pain psychologist. The pain psychologist does a great one-hour assessment of the patient's risk and what they're going through, depression, anxiety, sleep problems. Um, and then our program, at least our program is a, a modified program. Patients are enrolled in groups of four, um, and they're there five hours a day, and they have a round robin of uh, physical therapy for one hour, occupational therapy, uh, pain psychology, and relaxation training. And our patients are there three days a week. Uh, two of the days, it's an individual one-on-one -on -one treatment, and one of the days, they're in a group setting. And we also have a lot of education. We have a nurse educator that does, uh, put, takes them through a curriculum about understanding pain, pain pathways, stress, sleep. Uh, sex and low back pain. It's our favorite, the one that most patients like. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think, you know, really, I think a lot of it is really giving people more tools to manage their pain. I think it's a mistake to think of this as just an opioid. I always think the opioid itself is a marker that they didn't have comprehensive care. Um, and so many of our patients are taking opioids because they got an anxiolytic effect from it. And I think our previous patient earlier talked about the stress and everything else going on in their life around their pain. And then they get a little reward from taking an opioid, separate from the people, unfortunately, that developed addiction problems. Um, so that's our program, is, is in, in integrating that. And we still offer acupuncture, addiction treatment, well, medication management. We have a procedure suite, and we do procedures and injections uh, and those things like a traditional pain clinic. So uh, I think the goal is how do you provide what patients individually need, and some of those patients need a team-based approach. So I listen to that, and I think about Joan's story, um, and she didn't get that, right? Or Well, she did eventually, but she didn't get that at first. Um, and, and I asked her about what the patient's ability or responsibility was in this, and so I hear you describing that, and I think, okay, if I was in pain, that's, uh, sign me up, that's mm -hmm. what I want. Um, so what's the patient to do? Do we have to find Swedish? Is, is, that, is that what I need to do? Well, maybe, or? My, maybe my boss would like that if he said find Swedish. So, uh, but, but uh, you know, in, in other words, yeah. do, do patients have to score the country looking for, uh, you know, the, the cutting edge 
clinic, or can they do something independently of that, recognizing that they may not have that healthcare service in their area? Well, you know, I, th I think first you can take a step back, and there's been a lot in the physical therapy world, and I'm setting up you for this, uh, with um, the physical therapist out in the community identifying risk factors, um, the start back tool, different tools you can use to identify depression, anxiety, maladaptive thoughts, uh, and behaviors, and then tying that into their assessment of patients. So I think early intervention, even when a patient sees a physical therapist or getting a primary care doctor to better understand how to assess pain. You know, we threw a lot of this to our primary care providers who were not trained at all, let alone pain, a lot of our specialists that weren't trained in pain. Um, so I, I think, you know, there's that idea of doing this at a better job early on in individual unimodal treatment with physical therapy or even in primary care clinics. Um, on the other side, if you develop a chronic pain problem, is your pain provider, does that pain person do medical management? Do they have um, a network of physical therapists that they work for, with, work with or for? Do they have um, behavioral health, which has been completely um, underappreciated, psychology, relaxation training? Um, what I get frustrated about is we get patients that start our program, and I was involved in a, a very uh, a successful pain rehabilitation program in Chicago for a number of years at the Rehab Institute of Chicago. And wherever we were with these types of programs, all of our patients would say, why wasn't I given this sooner? For the first week of the program, someone taught them how to breathe. Someone taught them how to pace, some to set limits with their family members, okay? Things they were doing their whole life. And here we waited three and five years to teach them something like that. So I, I think, um, do they, uh, uh, going back to the provider, does that provider have behavioral health and those interventions that can help teach patients? A lot of this is about education um, and unlearning kind of the maladaptive ideas, separate from, you know, uh, fear avoidance beliefs that a lot of pain patients can have, um, but also around getting patients to understand what pain is and really how it affects their function. It's easy to say that, uh, but you really have to take a deep dive and, and understand that individually with each patient. So you said you were setting up, Sarah, and, and you really did. Um, Sarah, you created a, a model called Power Over Pain, and, and before I have you talk about that model, I want to talk about the goal. The goal is the self-managing patient. Define that. So it's a lot of what Joan said, I would say. Um, the self-managing patient is someone who's handling their pain on their own, so not necessarily somebody who has zero pain, but somebody who's managing their pain. They have tools, they have the education they need to do what they, to sort of use the tools in a wise, we talk about making wise choices, they can make wise choices. So they're pacing their activities appropriately, they're doing things with good body, you know, they're lifting things properly off the floor and not engaging in things that are making their pain worse and are engaging in activities that help make their pain better. So it's a lot of what Joan was saying about self-empowerment. So we view, it's a little bit of a paradigm shift, I guess, where we're viewing the patient as the person who's taking care of themselves, and then we in healthcare are serving as their consultants. So power over pain, the, the words are really meaningful too. Again, when we think about how overwhelming pain can be for some people, describe how that model works. How do you take people through it? How long does it take? What's involved? So we started this a little bit haphazardly. We just, uh, we had already had a centering program at our clinic. I work in a community-based clinic. We had a centering program for pregnancy and we treat a lot of people with chronic pain and needless to say they're a, a complicated a nuanced group of people to treat, and so we decided we were going to do centering for people who had pain and get an interdisciplinary group together. So we really just looked at the literature and did what the literature told us to do, plus what our experience, what we had had a success with in our experience with our patients. So we knew it needed to be an outpatient. We didn't quite have the infrastructure to do a, like an inpatient program and we knew that those were successful so we tried to implement the best we could a lot of the things in those inpatient programs and outpatient settings so we ended up doing one hour a week um, and it was just ongoing and you didn't have to sign up so we did a very much a no barriers approach where people could come in it was always there it was always at the same time the same week and patients can come in when they wanted to and if it was raining they didn't feel good they didn't have to and they weren't sort of chastised for that. Um, and we do, we spent about the first 10 minutes doing whatever the education topic was for the day and whichever professional was the expert on that is who led the discussion. And then the entire rest of the hour is really spent on digesting that and sort of figuring not just do you know this information but how can you use that information and letting patients um, sort of figure out how they were going to apply that information in their lives. And there was a lot of giving each other advice, so a lot of group support 
And when we got feedback about the program, that was something that people enjoyed quite a bit about. It was bouncing ideas off of each other and not just all the ideas being driven from us. So, you know, patient education, we know it's important. We know that it can have results. Um, but convincing somebody in pain that what they need is just to understand it uh, seems like a leap. Um, how do you do that? How do you, how do you get somebody to believe that this is going to help them get better? So that's probably the most common question I get, um, is how do you actually do that? Um, and I think the answer, I think it's an, that pain and opioid use are both very nuanced and complicated problems, and everybody has arrived at them in a different and very personal way. And so I think the way that we approach it needs to be nuanced and very personalized. So what I say to one person is not necessarily going to be what I say to another person. Yeah, Stephen, I, yeah. no, I, I like what she's saying because I think well, when we started our program at Swedish, none of our therapists, uh, physical therapists, occupational therapists, psychologists, and relaxation therapists had never worked in, the, in a structured program. And then as they work together, the PT knows what their psychologist is working on with mindfulness, and the relaxation therapist knows what our occupational therapist is doing with Tai Chi. So there's this uh, synergy between all of those. And then I think over time, the therapists get better, not just what they're doing within their, their own specialty, but understanding everything else. And the patients understand that. And that's what we got the same comments. Like, you, this is a therapeutic relationship. And I think that's been rare because they've been given a medicine and asked, what's your pain score? And then they go to some place where there's team-based treatment and they're yeah. being listened to and being respected. Um, and they can bounce off, like you said, the questions that they have. So I think that's the combination. And it's funny that they don't tell me when they finish the program, thanks for changing my sleep medicine. They say, wow, your team was really good. They really listened to each other. They listened to me. So I, I think there's, there's something there. And I think we can appreciate team-based care but it's hard to deliver and we need to get support from payers. Um, in our program, uh, the insurance companies, we have multiple co-pays. Some of our patients are paying $200 a day in co-pays. Uh, so I think there's a lot of basic things that need to be done within the healthcare system to really do this. We just can't say, don't use opioids. We have to have other resources and we have to be able to provide that um, at all those different levels. And I, I think the, when, you're, when you're telling a patient who's taking opioids and has pain, to stop taking the pain medicine, it is totally counterintuitive for that patient. So I think it's, it's really about sitting down and having a very earnest conversation with them. You have to build trust and you have to build credibility, I think. And sometimes you just have to say, look, I know this doesn't make any sense at all and this is totally counterintuitive, but there's data, there's research, you know, whatever, it, what, I, what I say really varies patient to patient, you know, give it a try, can we just try it, can we, can we um, you know, try it for two weeks, see how you feel, you can ask me questions, but I think it's really about, like, I'm here to help you. I think patients really need to understand that you're not just trying to shoo them out the door because they're annoying pain patients. You know, they really need to know that you're there, that you're committed, and when they get that feeling, they're much more likely to hear what you're trying to say. And the truth is, is that most people don't feel great on opioids. So if you're offering them something else, most people really want another option. And if you can get enough airtime with them and enough trust with them to explain that, I've found most people to be very open. I want to ask one final question of both of you, um, and it's a big question. Uh, I'll throw a disclaimer on it yet again. I don't want to minimize what it means to be in pain. Uh, at the same time, we have a culture where we want an immediate total fix to pain from a mild headache to something much more severe. Is our cultural attitude about pain part of the thing we need to change? Stephen, I'll start with you. Oh, yeah, I think and I, you said it's a quick one, so we have to be fast, right? Um, I mean, definitely more education about it because I think if you think of all of the commercials, everything we're exposed to on a daily basis is you take your pill, you run down the beach, and you're smiling. So, and and <laughs> let pain be your gut, uh, let pain be your guide. If you have pain, stop. I mean, all those things we're telling them is the wrong thing. And, you know, so I've, in some patients, we don't even ask them what their pain score is. You wake up in the morning, what do you do? And you walk through and see from a functional standpoint, what are they doing throughout the day? So you, we have to change how we talk to people. Now, for acute pain, maybe your pain score is important. I think there's been this push that the pain score is not important. It's important in a certain way, but you have to take it in the context of what else is going on with the patient. Sarah? Yes, so I would agree with all of that. I think... Um, I think everybody has pain. Once you're above a certain age, <laughs> everybody has a little bit of pain. Everybody has a little arthritis. So I don't think that zero pain is particularly realistic for any of us. 
Um, I think when you've been struggling with pain for a long time, that is just the last thing you want to hear, that zero pain isn't actually your goal. But I think sort of similar to my answer to the previous question is you have to build trust and confidence in people who are struggling that better, every little step counts, you know, sort of looking at your small step goals and not just at this far off goal of perfection. I always say we're just going to divorce ourselves from perfection and we're going to go for like if you could do all the things that were important to you, maybe with some pain but not enough pain to stop you, would that be good enough? And that would certainly be better than where we are now. So let's just get there first and see what happens. Sarah Wenger, Stephen Santos, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. We are going to take about a 10 second break. Don't go anywhere. And then we're going to be back with our final panel of the night. We'll be right back. A quick break to tell you about Find a PT, the American Physical Therapy Association's national database of physical therapists. PTs are movement experts who treat people of all ages and abilities, helping them to improve and maintain function and quality of life. Don't wait until you have an injury to see a PT. Contact one today and learn how you can improve your fitness and prevent health problems before they start. You can contact a physical therapist near you, no physician referral required, by going to moveforwardpt.com. And now, back to this episode of Move Forward Radio. And once again, from the headquarters of the American Physical Therapy Association in Alexandria, Virginia, we're back with our panel event. And this is our last panel of the night. Um, I'd like to introduce our panelists. First, uh, to your far right, is Bill Hanlon. He's been a staff physical therapist for seven years, I believe, uh, working in addiction recovery at the St. Joseph Institute seven years at the St. Joseph Institute. Uh, and then Tiffany McCaslin, uh, she's a senior policy analyst, public policy for Nas the National Business Group on Health. Um, Tiffany, I'm gonna start with you. The National Business Group on Health represents more than 400 uh, large, primarily large employers, including 73 of the Fortune 100, um, who provide group health and other employee benefits to more than 55 million Americans. Um, so let's take an issue, right? Let's take back pain. Uh, Back pain is a common condition that pushes people into the healthcare system at some point in time. Uh, back pain leads to uh, large amounts of job-related disability and missed work days. Those mixed work days are a pressure point for the employee. They're a pressure point for the employer. Uh, what can these employers do? What's their uh, opportunity and responsibility in terms of keeping people healthy and pain-free in the first place so they don't have those mixed work days so they can go to work? Sure, thanks for the question and I'll just start by saying thank you so much for having me here and also um, thanks for having this really important conversation. Um, I, like many, have had a very personal experience with um, opioid addiction um, with someone close to me and my family and it is you know, a really challenging thing to deal with. That um, actually happened about 10 years ago, so it was before there was really all this spotlight on it and I've learned a lot and been very passionate about this issue. Um, since then. You know, I think employers have um, a lot of opportunity to impact this space um, and to help their employees, you know, be healthy and, and think about their, their pain and, you know, their prescriptions in a comprehensive way. Um, specifically, our organization uh, worked with the um, Consumer Reports to develop a non-invasive um, guideline for uh, low back pain. Um, we've also put out um, employer alerts um, to our members to give them recommendations for, you know, how they can really talk to their employees about pain, um, how they can empower their employees, um, how they can reduce the stigma associated not only with chronic pain, um, but also with addiction and really, you know, kind of empower them to seek help when they need it. Um, so I think, you know, there's really a lot of, of opportunity. This is an area where employers have been really focused. Um, they have developed centers of excellence um, within their plan design networks um, to really drive patients into, you know, these multidisciplinary approaches that we've been hearing about here so that an employee can actually have, you know, a high-touch um, experience with some uh, very educated physicians um, who are working together to help them avoid, you know, kind of going down this path. Um, so it's a lot. Uh, I probably didn't cover it all, but. <laughs> so uh, th this epidemic uh, really entered the national conversation when President Obama was still in office. And I, I want to read something he said back in March 2016. Um, he was discussing the opioid epidemic and he said, we have a health care system that too often is really a disease care system. We wait until people get sick and then we treat them. 
and we don't spend enough time thinking about how we keep people well and healthy and balanced and centered in the first place. Um, so again, keeping people well in the first place benefits the employee and the employer. Um, can employers, big, large employers in particular, do meaningful things to keep people healthier in the first place? Can they be part of it, or is it all in the healthcare system itself? Sure. You know, I think this area in particular is one that employers have really embraced um, for a long time. I see head shaking already in the audience, probably because you know you, you know, at your employer, you have wellness days, you have wellness weeks. Um, there's, you know, employee well-being programs that are pushed out to employees to really focus on, you know, some specific things like diabetes and, you know, other chronic conditions where employees um, really struggle sometimes managing those things on their own. Um, you know, I think specific to the opioid issue, there are some real opportunities here as well. Um, you know, we are actually rolling out this year what we're calling a multi-session opioid summit. And we are um, really pressing on our members to kind of take a, a look at this issue with their eyes wide open. I often say that this issue is uh, a NIMBY issue for employers. It's the not in your back, not in my backyard issue. And it's not because they don't know that this is a problem. I mean, everybody reads the newspaper. But it's a challenging issue for employers to identify because they're not clinicians. Most of our employers do not employ chief medical officers. Um, and this is a, it's a multifaceted and complex issue. And they can take a look at their claims, but unless they're really educated on this topic, it's challenging for them to kind of, you know, pick out, okay, well, where are my problems and where can we be more focused? Um, so our summit, which we are rolling out over the course of the year, is really aimed at educating them around that, teaching them how they can comb their claims databases, teaching them to work with their PBMs and their health plans to implement the CDC guidelines. You know, the CDC guidelines are fabulous. Unfortunately, they're not being implemented. And so, you know, these are some real actionable concrete areas where employers um, can have meaningful impact by working with their vendors. So I want to go back to the, the patient or the, the consumer, um, the employee. Um, they may not have individual control over what their employer offers. Um, what would your advice be to them about you know, the conversations they should have with their employer potentially, um, other models they might be able to show their employer about what might be possible? That's a great question. Um, I've worked in this space for uh, almost 15 years. And when I had um, a personal issue where I was actually trying to seek help for uh, my loved one, I couldn't find help anywhere. Um, now, he did not have a very generous you know, employer plan, and so it was a, a unique situation. But I would say that there are many, many challenges around that that need to be addressed. Um, there needs to be better communication. There needs to be less stigma, and I think you know, employers can really work with their um, employee populations and their supervisor populations to reduce stigma to make that conversation easier. Um, but there are other uh, avenues where employees can find help on these types of things like employee assistance programs. Uh, almost all large employers offer these, even most you know, state health plans and the federal health plan. You can call your employee assistance program and you typically have you know, a set number of consulta consultative hours where you can talk about you know, these exact kind of things. It's wonderful, thank you. So uh, I want to introduce now our, our final panelist, and that's Bill Hanlon. Uh, Bill, you, you come at this from a slightly different angle. Uh, you have seen over the last several years in your role, you're a staff physical therapist in addiction recovery. So you're seeing people not necessarily because they're in pain and pain led to addiction, you're seeing people who are addicted and trying to recover from that and, and some pain that might result. The first question I want to ask is a basic, a simple one. When you listen to Joan's story, the story of her, the story of her brother-in-law. Does that sound like what you see every day? What, what do you see every day, especially as it relates to the opioid epidemic? Yeah, Joan's story is very similar to what I see every day and uh, the patient stories that I've heard uh, over these seven years. Um, patients have surgeries, they have pain, they get on opiates, and they can't get off them. And I see the patients when uh, they've been addicted for some time and then getting them off of opiates, what do we have to offer them that can help with their pain, help them manage their life? And a lot of the things that were mentioned earlier, um, we have yoga, we have physical therapy, we have um, acupuncture, we have massage therapy, we have counselors, we have psychologists, we talk about their pain, we engage them to have control over their life and their pain again when for a long, long time they have not. 
I, I always hate to generalize or, or boil it all down to one experience, but when someone is, is getting over an addiction, um, is, is pain common? Uh, you know, in other words, I, I, usually people, I think, think about the problem itself, the disease of addiction itself. What sort of pain are they experiencing from that alone, not just not using whatever they used, but going through that experience? Yeah, if someone doesn't, hasn't had multiple surgeries and doesn't have a disease process that causes pain, they still have pain when they're coming off of opiates. They have muscle cramping. They have uh, belly pain. They have nausea. Um, they're uncomfortable, and they need a team of people to help them get through that and realize this pain is, is manageable. And um, we actually see, you know, in the first two weeks, an increase in pain um, if they have musculoskeletal pain that then diminishes over time as they enter into the interdisciplinary care and are talking to the counselors and working with the physical therapist and doing yoga and all the things that we offer as a team to help them. And, and it really does work. And people that never thought, I can live without opiates, they just thought they would be on opiates the rest of their lives, are opiate-free and doing well. They may not be pain-free, but it's very manageable and they're more active and functional than they've been in years. So earlier we addressed sort of one of the elephants in the room, which is cost, right? High co-pays right now potentially for some of those opioid alternatives and alternatives, and we need to change that. The other one, and it goes hand in hand with cost, is time. So if you're going to see multiple people, if you're going to go a different way, it may take a lot of time. Um, so first of all, you know, how much time does it take to go through a process like this, to emerge on the other side, being able to manage your pain? Uh, what should people expect? Well, our program is a 30-day model, and it, it does take you know, several weeks to see that change in pain. But within 30 days, most of our patients have a very manageable and, and many uh, a low level of pain. Um, but it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in two or three days. Um, but over several weeks, they see a huge difference. So we talked about you know, changing the culture around pain. Um, and again, that idea right now, we want a quick fix, we want an immediate remedy. Uh, addiction, like pain, is something that generally does not have a quick fix. Can, can we learn something, not that we've mastered uh, addiction recovery necessarily, but can we learn something in managing pain uh, in the way that we approach addiction? Yes, I think the way that we approach addiction um, needs to be multidisciplinary, just as the management of chronic pain needs to be multidisciplinary. And as we get all the disciplines involved um, and understand the psychology of the person who has the addiction and that disease, then we can help them more and more. And they, they tend to do well in a multidisciplinary environment. But I've talked to so many patients who tried to get out of their addiction on their own and, and failed um, and then went back and then overdosed. Um, and you know, ended up in the emergency room several times. And so it's really, really difficult, if not impossible, for them to do it on their own. But with a team of professionals working with them, it's very possible. Um, another, th oh yeah, please. Um, you know, we are 10% of the world's population and we consume 90% of all opioids in the entire world. So I think the question, is there an opportunity to change the culture, is a no-brainer. Um, you know, there are countries where patients leave, you know, after having an outpatient surgery with no opioids, none. They never get prescriptions. Is that the right thing? You know, I don't really know the answer to that, but I certainly think that where we are is the wrong thing. Um, and that is, you know, another space where our employer members are very focused is sort of changing this culture of how we think about pain and the necessity to be pain-free because it's, you know, often not a realistic expectation. That's a great point. And, and Bill, before this event, we were talking about attitudes around pain. And you mentioned you see a lot of people who, in your words, spent two or three years getting into a problem and expect to get out of it in two or three days and that that's not realistic. Um, likewise, we hear a lot of times uh, related to other injuries, you know, somebody will tell the physical therapist, do I have to do this exercise forever? And it's like, well, is it working? And do you want it to be part of the solution? <laughs> it, it might be a good idea. How, you know, how do we get people to believe in this idea that they need to commit to their health day in, day out, and that some of these problems may take a day in and day out commitment for potentially for the rest of their lives? Yeah, and it's, it's communicating with people. It's talking to people and letting them experience the wellness and experience exercise 
that doesn't increase their pain and experience sleeping better um, because the doc is working on their sleep medicine and the patient is doing the exercise you know that's been prescribed and they're sleeping better which also helps with pain and gives them a better quality of life and they're eating better because off of opiates people enjoy their meals more and have fewer GI issues um, and they experience this wellness and they experience um, lower pain levels and then they they want to cooperate with it because they see that it's working we could talk about this all night unfortunately we can't um, so we're gonna close out thanks again for our final panelists uh, and thank you for everybody watching online um, just to give you a preview of some things coming up from APTA, later this month, APTA hopes to release a white paper outlining recommendations to address the opioid crisis. In May, PTJ, APTA's official scientific journal, will publish a special edition on pain. You can find those articles uh, publishing online ahead of print in late March. In June, APTA's member magazine, PT in Motion, will have a feature article um, on the opioid epidemic. And in the meantime, you can go to moveforwardpt.com slash choosept, learn more about the ways that physical therapists can help. Um, that includes a patient profile. It is a document where you can talk, rate the pain you've been having, rate some of your past experience, and bring that to you when you talk to a doctor so you can have a conversation about the pain you're feeling and the kind of treatment you want to have. I would encourage anybody to download that. Um, last thing, finally, this event doesn't happen without a lot of help from a lot of people. Thank you to support from multiple APTA staff, but especially Alice Bell, Kara Gaynor, Jabron Ishmael, Elise Ladowick, Mike Matlack, and Don Paulson. We'll be posting this event in full to YouTube and Facebook tomorrow. Again, you can find the Choose PT PSA posted to the Move Forward PT accounts later today. Please share this video from this panel. There's a lot of great information here. We've learned a lot tonight. Let's extend that message out because we have no doubt that someone near you is having this problem, whether you know it or not. I'm Jason Bellamy. Thanks for being with us tonight. Video of this event is available at apta.org slash beyondopioids. You can find the Choose PT public service announcement, plus related information about the opioid epidemic and the benefits of physical therapist treatment for pain at moveforwardpt.com slash choosept. Please help us raise awareness by sharing these resources. I'm Jason Bellamy. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or find previous episodes at moveforwardpt.com. Move Forward Radio is brought to you by moveforwardpt.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at moveforwardpt.com.